Hey y'all, you're listening to Crying and Trying, the podcast, the comprehensive guide for cultivating emotional intelligence in a fucked up world. This podcast focuses on how oppressive systems and the human experience interact and impact our mental health. As a disclaimer, I am not a licensed mental health care professional or an expert. I am just one human who has lived through the mental health experience, sharing my story and giving my advice. Please, if you or someone you know needs help, seek it out immediately by a professional. I will have hotlines, warm lines, and other support resources available in the show notes. So welcome back to another episode of Crying and Trying. I am your host, Lexi, and today I have a guest on who is going to talk to us about um, neuropsych evaluations, traumatic brain injuries, and her own experience with mental health. Um, so I'd like to welcome Gabby Brost. Uh, hi, Gabby. Hi. Uh, so I met Gabby on Instagram, actually, and uh, found her through the powerlifting community. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, I was a competitive powerlifter for a while. Uh, my mental health has kind of taken priority, and that was something I have not done for the past year or so. But I was very involved in that community, found a lot of support, a lot of, uh, met a lot of lifelong friends through that community, and I was introduced to Gabby and the work that she does. Um, so I had personally some rough experiences with coaches and saw Gabby posting all these things about being inclusive and, uh, you know, having clients that work with anxiety and depression. And I was like, Ooh, I really like what she has to say. And I started following her on Twitter and constantly you're coming out with content that's like inclusive, talking about current events, talking about, you know, all of the isms and how they interact and in your business and what you do. Um, so I'm really excited that you're here to share your experience with, uh, me and my listeners. Thank you so much for having me. I really, love talking about all this stuff. So I'm very excited for today. Great. Um, so, I mean, we had a lot of things that we could talk about. So I figure we can just start with, you know, your experience in the mental health system um, before you had your traumatic brain injury. Uh, did you struggle with your mental health or is that something that has come out of that experience? Um, I did. However, I didn't have the language and the perspective to understand that I was struggling with my mental health because I use my um, work or being productive as such a strong coping mechanism. <laughs> um, and I'm somebody who really thrives on structure. Yes, and yes. so I would just structure my life into oblivion to avoid and like dissociate from the things that were happening. Um, and I can remember like as a teenager being a little bit more in tune with my mental health in terms of like peaks and valleys of that and kind of acknowledging anxiety, acknowledging depression um, and stuff like that. However, after I got my two concussions, it really was a point where I couldn't fill my life that way anymore because my brain just literally said no um and so it kind of rushed to the forefront because I was like here's all the shit you've been avoiding for your entire <laughs> life let's deal with it now oh that like mirrors my experience very well like I overstructured my whole life did all of the things was super quote-unquote successful that picturesque like I'm checking all the boxes 
And it was just to like avoid all of the things that I wasn't dealing with. And then I hit a wall and like I had a trigger that happened and I was like, oh, I can't, I can't pretend that everything is fine anymore. And um, so I, I totally empathize with your situation and having like this late stage diagnosis almost of like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm an adult. Like I have my life together and now like I have to completely restructure how I navigate the world because I'm realizing these things about myself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that like the more I talk to people, the more that experience is becoming not necessarily common, but more like well talked about and articulated. And I think that now we also have like better language to understand that. And we have better frameworks to understand how things like socialization and capitalism and things like that really impact how we move through the world and how we structure our worldview and how we set up our systems for ourselves to simply exist and survive, if not thrive under those systems. Yeah, for sure. Um, so how long ago did you have these concussions? Um, let's see. Uh, I got my first one in September of 2020 and my second one in December of 2020. Okay. So still pretty recent that you're dealing Mm -hmm. with all of these changes. So, I mean, what, can you just talk us through the experience of like having those concussions, what kind of changes you were noticing and like how you, how you dealt with that change? Sure. So, um, I got my first concussion, uh, at a protest at a local jail. I was, um, arrested, very violently arrested and thrown to the ground. And then I was in jail for about a day. Um, and during that like time, Afterwards, I noticed I just had a really bad headache. I was super sensitive oh. to light, um, which like in jail, it's just like perpetually light. It's like a casino yeah, right. <laughs> situation. Um, and I just felt like kind of off. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't really understand. Like I had knowledge about concussions. Like I work in sports and stuff like that. So um, I was like, I think I'm, I think I'm concussed here because I'm starting to have like a lot of light sensitivity, noise mm-hmm. sensitivity, starting to lose little chunks of time. Like I would go and do a task to find that I'd already done the task, but I had yeah. no recollection of doing that task. Um, so I had to go through this, this whole process several days later of trying to get a concussion diagnosis for insurance purposes and like filing stuff purposes and legal purposes and stuff like that, which was a whole um, thing in and of itself. But um, I really, I kind of like took a couple days off work, took like a week off of training. um, And then when I came back to doing stuff, I noticed that I was just having a really hard time focusing and um, my thoughts were a little bit jumbled and I felt like I couldn't communicate in the same way that I did before. Um, and my coaching style, whether in person or online, is very uh, education driven. So I do a lot of talking and asking questions and things like that. Mm-hmm. So that was really lacking. And I had remembered that somebody I know had seen like a concussion physical therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, you know what, like, let me just go get evaluated and see what they say. Like the worst they can say is like, you're fine. Um, and I did that and they run you through this whole battery of tests. And it turns out that I was having a lot of like post-concussion syndrome symptoms. Um, my eyes were very messed up in terms of like my ability to converge. So to like focus in on one thing, um, which was impacting my ability 
to read and to like watch people lift yeah um, like sustain that for a certain period of time so I did concussion physical therapy which I didn't even know is a thing but it's definitely a thing and yeah. it's very helpful um and then in that time um I am a street medic so like during the uprisings of 2020 um and things like that I became a street medic at that time um so I was out in the community a lot at protests things like that yeah. I was street medicing uh, at an event in another city that was close to me um and my medic group was jumped by about 70 proud boys probably like oh it's a huge, like the entire march of them um I had a helmet on and everything but I took like at least 20 blows to the head oh um and so after that I was like I think I'm not concussed again but when I went back to my physical therapy my concussion physical therapy like all my scores on my stuff had kind of gone down she's like yeah you definitely like got reconcussed yeah um and so we did that I did like speech therapy which if anybody's not familiar with speech therapy um it's not only like speaking um it's a lot about like memory and recall yeah. and stuff like that I did that as well um which was very helpful because I was having some memory problems yeah with that um and so the combination of everything kind of mimicked uh very much like adult onset ADHD type mm -hmm. symptoms um and just like general lack of focus had a lot of headaches still get a lot of headaches so that was like a big thing that impacted doing fitness uh for me uh and things like that so it's been a long road to recovery which is still like not over like with brain injuries the first year is pretty critical but like you can make a lot of progress um five years and beyond uh with with things like that so it's been a huge learning experience more than anything else oh my god I bet I feel like I mean when I hear traumatic brain injury that just in and of itself sounds so scary and it's like you know like uh, your brain is the the epicenter of everything and so if it, it gets injured I'm just like I heard your story and I was like oh my god how are you still doing all the things you're doing and like because it's so hard I mean, you can attest to it when you are struggling and you have all of these external factors or internal factors and you're not having a good day and like you still have to show up and you have to go train and then you have to go coach people. And it's like so challenging to do that. So I am like so impressed by like your determination and your motivation to just keep going despite all of the crap that <laughs> has been thrown your way. That's like so amazing. Yeah, I mean, my work, my work really changed and my relationship to work really changed. Um, I really kind of like after I got my initial concussions, I again, like took maybe like a week off after my second mm -hmm. concussion. I did that, like my training definitely changed um, in some pretty like fundamental ways, but my work didn't change. Mm -hmm. um, and I run an online coaching business and I do in-person coaching as well. Um, and so at a certain point, like earlier this year, I got to a point where I was like, I cannot do in-person stuff for a period of time. Um, it was really too like stressful and um, too draining. And so I took about six months off of doing like in-person yeah. personal training to sort of reevaluate my relationship and how I wanted that to be structured. 
um, because if anybody is a personal trainer or works in any sort of like self-directed service, yeah. um, you sort of know the perils of the schedule slip where mm-hmm. you're like, I can take a person here and I can take a person here. And then all of a sudden you're faced with this like overwhelming schedule and you're like, holy shit, how did I get here? Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes you just got to like wipe the slate clean and, and do that sort of stuff. So my relationship to work, um, has really, really changed because of all this. Yeah, I bet. I mean, so how, how do you handle like the really bad days when you're, you're really struggling, you're having your brain, like you have a migraine, your brain is just like, no, your ADHD is just like, no, we can't do this. And like, you still have a packed schedule and things to do. Like, are you, is your inner critic really loud? And like, telling you that you're lazy and like, I can't believe, like, cause that's what happens to me. Like, oh, you're not good enough. Like, why can't you just try harder? Why can't you just push through it? Like if that happens to you, what's kind of the internal dialogue you're having with yourself? Yeah. I think like on the external side first, like if I'm having a migraine or like a day where it is really hard for me to function, Mm -hmm. I will cancel my clients that day. And I will be honest about the reason because I'm very upfront with my clients, my clients are the coolest like they're great um and I never want to show up not as my fullest self and not give them the service that I feel that they deserve Mm -hmm. um like yeah I could probably stand there and like count some reps and stuff like that but that's like I'm not gonna take your money for that like it's just not gonna sit well with me um and same thing for online clients you know I will pop into like our discord or message them through our app and be like hey like I'm gonna be out of the app today just kind of like having a day but like anything urgent park it here and then like we'll get to stuff and again all my clients are are great uh, with stuff like that internally it took me a really long time to sort of quiet that inner voice that is like feeling guilty you're lazy you should be doing something even if you're not working like should you be cleaning your house should you be writing should you be doing something else like um it took a really long time it's still something that i definitely struggle with to sort of um, give myself the same kindness that I would give to any of my clients or any of my friends. And I work a lot with people with chronic illness and neurodivergence and stuff like that. So we do have a lot of conversations about like, what do we do when we're just not having a good day? Um, And a lot of times like that is out of our control, like especially with chronic illness things. Yeah. Um, And so I kind of think about like, what would I say to them? How can I embody that? And then kind of couch that in the like grounding recognition that um, I don't want to be good at capitalism. I don't want to be good at hustling. I don't want to build some massive empire. I don't want to be a billionaire. I don't want any of that. That is not in alignment with my values. Um, I would rather live a life of like ease and joy and being helpful and things of that nature. And so sometimes I have to remind myself that it's like, it's, it's okay if you're bad at capitalism today, because like, do you even really want that? And the answer is no, but I feel like I should want it because that is the rhetoric we are given as individuals. Um, and especially as like entrepreneurs and stuff, it's like always like hustle, grind, da, da, da. no, I'm not here for it. <laughs> yeah. That's like, I mean, I'm coming to terms with my internalized capitalism over the past few years. And it's just like, 
absolutely mind-boggling how deeply embedded into each of us it is and that like you know I'm not worthy unless I'm doing something every minute of every day and like you know I used school and work and powerlifting as an escape for things and I was like oh I'm winning I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to when, when you're you're struck with this this thing that makes you stop this brain injury or this mental health condition or whatever it is. And you really have to reevaluate, like, what are my priorities? What are my values and what's most important? So how do you balance that as someone who like you're running your own business, you do have to take people's money. Like you have to survive under capital. How do you approach that in a way? Cause like, I know you're also super inclusive and I, do you do sliding scales, right? I like, do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you handle like the, the empathy and the compassion piece of like, I want to help people. I want to give them these resources, but like, I also need to survive. Yeah. So kind of restructuring my business to include things like sliding scale. Um, and I also do like occasionally some like scholarships where like team members will donate funds to like mm-hmm. fund somebody else's training for like a period of time or, or whatever. That's awesome. Um, and I think that like that model works for me because of the like type of clients that I attract. Mm-hmm. Um, and that happens because of I am who I am all the time and I'm very loud, so to speak, on <laughs> social media and stuff like that about my value system and what and what that is yeah um and so the it's very interesting like when people talk about sliding skills because they're like well why wouldn't everybody just take the cheaper option and it's like well like if you are working with certain groups and like certain people that's not always the case Mm -hmm. and like people will take the higher option or the lower option you know like you will have a mix of people um and then I do try to provide like a lot of free stuff Um, or like different tiers of services. Like I've got like one-on-one coaching, obviously. And then I've got like a team training that is pretty much just like programming only. I do give some feedback and there's like a week of like video feedback. I'm included in that. And that's like 35, $40 a month. Um, And then I have some like free programs and stuff like that. And I always try to offer up um, like as much information as I can to help people help themselves. Um, even with my paying clients, that is never my goal to keep my clients on my roster forever. Um, it is my goal that they feel that they're capable and able to do these things on their own. And they feel good about that. Um, I have clients who have been with me for like five years. That's great. And they're not with me because they need me. They're with me because they, they want me, (laughs) um, you know, and it's, it's the same reason I have a coach. Like I just don't want that on my brain, uh, sort of situation. (laughs) But I think it's really like, I think it becomes really scary when we talk about sliding scale or um, economic accessibility as business owners, because there is that balance. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's really okay to charge money for your services and to not be afraid to charge like an adequate amount um, for that. And there is a privilege in being able to be selective about who you work with and selective about like your pricing and things like that. So that has to be acknowledged there. Um, But also the notion that like there is enough and there is like always enough in terms of clientele. Um, Like you're never going to run out of clients essentially. (laughs) And I think that, you know, 
it does become a balancing act. And again, it kind of comes back to like, I don't necessarily want to be good at capitalism. I want to have enough for what I need to survive, obviously, and to like live comfortably and to like support my community and give back um, and things like that. And so it just kind of becomes like a value alignment thing. And for me personally, like I know people who charge significantly more than I do, who are significantly less experienced. um, And that's a whole thing in and of itself. But it's one of those things where it's like, you can't really charge an amount that you are not internally comfortable with mm-hmm. because that kind of comes across to the customer. Um, and also like, you're not going to feel good about it. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I really admire that about you, that you are like so open about that. And like, I, cause I, <laughs> I mean, you know very well how toxic the fitness industry is and oh, yeah. I have pulled back a lot from it because I've seen so many things and like, you know, people charging exorbitant amounts for coaching when they have no qualifications other than being strong themselves. And like, and it's just, it takes a lot of like reflection to be able to acknowledge that and be like, okay, like this is what I am able to do. This is how I can structure it so that people are getting services that align with all of this. So I like really commend you for doing that because that's something that a lot of people in the fitness industry do not know how to do and do not do, or if they try to, they don't do it well. Um, Yeah. I feel like, I mean, I remember when I first started training people, which was like, seven or eight years ago now um even just like personal because I started like personal training um it was a weird thing to like set prices and I worked at like some gyms where like my prices were set for me so I didn't really have a say in that yeah um but like when it came time for me to set my own prices there were like these two things on my shoulder like the angel devil sort of situation (laughs) if we're gonna use like a dichotomy example but like one was like charge like a ton of money because you have this experience you're qualified to that and the other is like but like what if you're not like what if you're what what if you're not yeah that Um, imposter syndrome (laughs) yeah and I think that like there's there's a real balance there between knowing that you do have the expertise that you do have the experience that you do have the qualifications that you can provide people with what they're looking for and at the same time that you are receptive to feedback, that you are open, and that you recognize that the more you know, kind of the less you know. Uh Um, And that there's like, it's to me personally, I never want to be the smartest person in the room. I don't learn that way. That is not how it works for me. Uh And so I think there's like kind of like a balance between that. And I think that ultimately time kind of weeds people out. Um, in this industry, especially because we do have such like high levels of burnout and things like that. But it's like, if you're just in it for like the money grab in the short term and you're just able to like kind of do fitness as entertainment, which like, there's nothing wrong with fitness as entertainment. Don't get me wrong. But like, if that is kind of all you're bringing to the table and you're charging exorbitant amounts of money, eventually that's going to stop working. Yeah at some point and then those people leave the industry and they move on to their next thing and and it is what it is yeah I mean it's very interesting not being immersed in the community right now because I haven't like really touched a barbell in like over a year at this point and so I've like pulled back and I just like there's so many people that like say that they're experts and like you can 
find a there's like enough uh coaches and uh strength training people that they're like oh I'll I'll do all your programming I'll do all this I'll do your nutrition like you can find more of them than you can find Dunkin Donuts like they're they're on every corner and so it's just like there's it's very difficult I think to find like somebody that has like the same set of values and the same goals that you do as you know an athlete because that was something I struggled with I had I went through a few coaches and didn't have success and felt really demotivated and I was like well I'm not cut out for this like I must not this must not be like my type of thing which is not true powerlifting is for everybody fitness and sports are for everybody um so it's just it's very interesting to see like your perspective and how you're able to do it so successfully and I think part of that too comes from you know, the intersections of your identities as well. Like you're Latina, you're queer, um, you live in Richmond, which I don't know what the socioeconomic, right? RVA, Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. So Richmond is an interesting city, like former capital of the Confederacy. So like that aspect is still very alive and well. Um, But there is really deep socioeconomic divide here um, and really stark socioeconomic divide here. Um, And being a fitness professional here, Mm -hmm. that is also reflected in like the places that you work at um, and like what people charge and how they structure their training and even like the type of service that they're offering. Mm -hmm. Like I've worked in like a boutique type fitness place where it was, they were charging like $90 an hour for me when they shouldn't have, I was not commanding $9 an hour at that time. Like no way. Um, and they, it was a lot of like executives and like high level people who kind of just wanted to check the box and say that they had a trainer. Yeah. Like I had a couple awesome clients who like wanted to get strong, want to learn things, do all that sort of stuff. Um, and I've also worked on like the other side of things there. And so it really does like, like location wise kind of it does make a difference in that way yeah for sure um so how have like the intersections of your identities influenced your coaching experience and like how you navigate through the fitness industry which is a male dominated white dominated industry so it's been an interesting experience to say the least especially (laughs) because I am like kind of firmly planted in the world of strength sports Mm -hmm. um both as an athlete myself and as a coach like I do coach quite a lot of general population stuff but I also coach a lot of strongman athletes and weightlifters and powerlifters and stuff like that so um being a femme person in that space uh is mostly filled with misogyny and getting the girlfriend treatment as I call it in the warm-up rooms um where the other especially if you're coaching a male um, where you just kind of are assumed to be the girlfriend there who's like helper mm-hmm. and the bag holder and stuff like that. And you're like, yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm the coach here. Um, <laughs> like I, I have stuff to do, uh, <laughs> sort of situation. And then like being queer and non-white really has informed my perspective about like, uh, how I hold space and create space and the spaces that I, um, like physically operate in, mm-hmm. in terms of like doing fitness for people. Um, and I think that people don't necessarily think about those things as being like important metrics yeah. um, when it comes to like evaluating gym environments or even evaluating like coaching environments, um, whether they are online or in person. But truly, 
like, I don't want to be in a space where I am next to someone who doesn't believe in my fundamental human rights. Yeah. Like that is not a comfortable experience for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and there is kind of this narrative that like, oh, the gym is the great equalizer and like all these different people come together. And it's like, yes, we can have a mixing pot of people and you do not have to be comfortable with those people. Mm -hmm. You do not have to be in community with people who are fundamentally unsafe to you. Um, And so it has really informed the way that I hold space, like I said, and like the spaces that I occupy by trying to foster environments that are truly inclusive and that really allow folks to show up um, Mm -hmm. as themselves, as their true selves to the level that they are comfortable in Um, and sort of like not pushing something that is like, oh, like you have to be queer this way or do this this way. Like just come be yourself in a space that is supportive for you, that you don't have to worry about the like bare bones, basic respecting of your human rights (laughs) type situation. Yeah, that's so awesome. And I like, I wish I saw more of that. I do. It's coming up. I see it here and there. And like, I do see the change happening. So thank you for being a part of that change because it is the, the gym is a scary place. Like even for like someone who is, has all of those privileges, white, able-bodied, like not struggling financially, like the gym is still scary. And so like having you know, if you are marginalized in any, any facet, mm-hmm. it makes it so much more difficult. Um, and so I wanted to ask you to talk about uh, fitness and neurodivergence. You had mm-hmm. a recent Instagram post that you made on that, that I thought mm-hmm. was amazing. And I will link it in the yeah. show notes. Um, but how, so first of all, what is neurodivergence and then how do, how, how do you deal with that in terms of fitness? So neurodivergence, like my sort of working definition of it is going to be anything that puts us outside of the category of like neurotypical. Mm -hmm. So neurodivergence can be mental illness. It can be autism. It can be ADHD, any way in which our brain functions in a way that is deemed quote unquote, not normal. Mm -hmm. Um, And that distinction is a little bit problematic in and of itself in terms of like deciding like what is normal um, because we know so very little like about the brain and how it functions and how it interacts with stuff like that. But when it comes to fitness and neurodivergence, there's really a lot of things that come to mind because fitness, mainstream fitness, whether it's even mainstream powerlifting, for example, which is like a niche thing, like has been designed to fit the normed systems right and so like when you don't fit into those systems a lot of people find themselves very frustrated because they're butting up against these things Mm -hmm. and they're like why can't i do this why can't i do this why can't my brain do this why can't i wrap my head around this why can't i execute this thing that's like it's not you it's the thing you're trying to shove yourself into yeah and so there are so many ways to do creative problem solving and to find creative solutions that work with people whose brains maybe function a little bit differently. And that's totally okay. Yeah. Um, I know like I work with a lot of ADHD clients. And so a lot of times, like when we're doing something centered around like a behavior change, right? Um, 
just checking in with them like once a week, like probably isn't going to do it. Um, we talk about like setting reminders on your phone, setting calendar invites, having checklists, having tangible things, having sticker charts. Um, we, the way I coach is a little bit different. Like I may use different language or I may give more reminders about like the number of reps that we're doing like more frequently and things like that. And really you try to kind of cater the experience to that person and the way in which they learn. Mm -hmm. And my background is, um, in psychology and criminal justice, but it's in education and uh, research. Mm -hmm. And so being an educator, an adult educator for a long time, really taught me to kind of evaluate and then also work with different learning styles. And mm -hmm. that's a big part of neurodivergence is like neurodivergent folks don't learn things the same way that neurotypical folks do. Mm -hmm. um, but fitness doesn't really talk about that. I mean, fitness isn't really teach you how to teach things anyways. Yeah. Um, and they certainly don't teach you how to teach things uh, in a way that is accessible to folks with differing levels of abilities and things like that. Yeah. And that's, I mean, something that I dealt with personally, like I had a coach that was very cookie cutter and was like, I do the same thing for everyone. We all have the same types of programs and like, we all use the same cues. And I like, remember when I was trying to learn how to sumo, and I was just like, I don't understand what you're saying. Like, I don't know how to do this thing that you're, and she would just say it over and over. And I was like, what does that mean? Like, yeah. I was like, I don't know what, how to do what you're telling me to do. And then like, I would get so, so frustrated. And like, I ended up crying in the gym so many times, feeling like a failure because I couldn't do it because I was trying to fit myself into this very narrow box that she had for her athletes. And like, it's so freeing when you, you're not, putting yourself in that little box, especially as a neurodivergent person. And you're like, oh, wait, there are other ways of doing this that work for me. Like, cause I felt like I was the problem for so long. I wanted to quit. I was like, I'm not a power lifter. I can't do this. Like, it's not for me. And then I found a different coach and I was like, oh, I, I can do this. I just need someone who can work with me and make adjustments. And that's, it's hard to do that. I mean, I was an educator, I taught children, so it's very different than teaching adults, but like the amount and variety of learning styles that exist is like infinite. And right. that's something that I feel like we just don't acknowledge in everyday life. It's the right. assumption that everyone is neurotypical and everyone does think the, the same way. And like, that's not how real life is. Everybody experiences the world in a different way. And like being able to adjust to that and and correct for that and be flexible in the moment is huge yeah and I think there's a lot of pressure on coaches too in terms of like like you have to do it this way mm -hmm. it is this way or it is no way and like certifications quite honestly like don't teach you shit um, <laughs> you know it's really about like they can teach you some like basics of physiology and exercise science which is no doubt important but in terms of like the what would be called like the soft skills of coaching um like communication and behavior change and psychology and stuff like that there really is not anything there um that teaches you how to do that that is really like self-directed effort yeah. and like quite frankly a lot of people don't know that it 
doesn't have to be that way. Mm -hmm. They don't know that it's not like a terrible experience. Uh Like I had a client who, um, I was like, oh, my friend is like interested in coming and like doing a session with me to like check it out. Because when I said I had a personal trainer, they were like, oh, like, I like the idea of that, but like, I don't want somebody to yell at me. I'm like, number one, I'm I'm never going to yell at you (laughs) ever type situation. But like, that's what media says that I should do, right? Is I should yell at you and I should berate you and I should shame you and I should do all these things to get you to fit into something that is important. And so much of that is really like a very, a big distinction between like come with me fitness and like look at me fitness and so many trainers are taught how to do the look at me fitness Mm -hmm. and not the come with me fitness yeah so I see on social media all the time people being like I don't need to go to therapy the gym is my therapy um I used to have that mindset for sure I was like the gym is great it helps me get out my anger it helps me feel better Um, And I've moved away from that line of thinking. But when you hear that phrase, how do you feel about that? So I made the post about this one time and I got some really interesting feedback because in my mind, like the gym can be therapeutic, but Mm -hmm. it is not therapy. Um, Even when we're talking about like very somatic based work, like for example, with folks with PTSD, Um, exercise can be a really big part of creating safety in your nervous system and creating regulation um, and a huge part of like therapeutic modalities for healing. However, um, even in that event, it is still not therapy. And I think what happens is we often get confused about what therapy actually is. Mm -hmm. Um, We think of it as something where it's an externalizing of an internal thing, which like, yes, therapy is part of that. However, therapy is also a large part about creating tools and learning tools to deal with the things that we have dealt with, the things we need to deal with. And like, obviously there are many branches of therapy of like DBT and EMBR and like just regular talk therapy, like all that sort of stuff. Um, but I feel that when you are using the gym as a substitute for doing the work that needs to be done Mm -hmm. it's just a swap you know and it can become a very slippery slope to something that becomes either very toxic or uh kind of has the opposite effect on your mental health Mm -hmm. um and I feel that we see this a lot in people whose entire identity and personality is the gym and I have 100% been that person Mm -hmm. and I feel like a lot of people are that person like when you first start because it's exciting and new and shiny and you feel good and like all of these things are happening um all those newbie gains that you get all the newbie gains right (laughs) but then inevitably life gets lifey something happens Mm -hmm. and you're forced to reckon with the separation of this from your identity Mm -hmm. right it's like who am I if I'm not an athlete who am I if I'm not the fitness friend and who am I am I not these things and so when we think about that and like we pull back a little bit and kind of examine that like from a more macro perspective Mm -hmm. I think that's where the distinction between like therapy and therapeutic Mm -hmm. really comes in like no doubt the gym is a great tool for things and like has there's a ton of research about like nervous system regulation and things like I said, um, like somatic modalities for dealing with things, but it's kind of not a substitute (laughs) for, um, 
learning the emotional regulation tools that we need, learning coping skills and executing those things in that way. Yeah. And I think like when people say that phrase, they're like, well, it makes me feel better. Like I go in and I'm angry and I lift and then I feel better. So it's therapy. And and yes, that is true. But it's also like you said, therapy is it takes a lot of that mental work. And that's mm-hmm. something I, I think a lot of people expect when they go to therapy that like they'll go to therapy and they'll be fixed I definitely thought that when I started going oh yeah even though I knew like rationally I'm like no it's not just gonna fix everything but like it takes a lot of effort and a lot of work and like you know I was going to therapy and I was also powerlifting I like started competing my whole life was powerlifting everyone on social media I followed everyone everything that I talked about I was like bringing my Tupperware to restaurants, like the whole nine cards. And then like the pandemic hit, couldn't go to the gym. And that was like when it's the facade started cracking for me. And I was like, oh, like when I can't go to the gym every day for three or four hours, like now I actually have to sit here with my thoughts and like, that's not fun. But it's, it was so hard for me when I was struggling with powerlifting. It wasn't fun anymore. Like I was, Mm -hmm. I dreaded going in the gym. I was like, I don't want to do this. Like I was afraid of all of the, I was like all constant. I was like, I'm, I can't do this. I'm not strong enough. And I pulled back from it. And my identity was so intertwined with being a powerlifter. And it's still something that I'm struggling with. Like I want to get back in the gym, but like, I don't know how to balance it. I'm worried that it will get back into that obsessive state. And, you know, if it is obsessive, like that scares me too, because then I'm like, I know that I have the uh, tendency to slip into that. Um, So how do you, like, do you have advice for how to find that balance? And especially like as someone who's work is also in the gym that must be extra hard so how how do you find the balance and like not tie your whole self-worth to the activity that you're doing I think it fundamentally starts with a divestment to from like to borrow from Brene Brown like hustling for your worthiness um because Brene Brown yeah right 100 (laughs) like I think in a lot of ways we see powerlifting, um, fitness in general, just whatever sort of things be substitutes for a way that we can achieve and the way that those achievements prop us up and distinguish us in some way. Um, and when that crumbles from like mental health stuff from very common thing that happens with injuries, um, especially like ones that maybe have a longer rehabilitation process sort of situation. I know that was like the case for me. Um, that is a really shocking thing to to wrestle with that identity thing and I think there's like multiple steps to to dealing with that the first being a recognition of like what is happening and a recognition and an acceptance and also a validation that like this is really hard shit and like this is hard and that's okay um and the recognition that like you are also capable of doing hard things and this is another hard thing that you're going to get through But I always encourage my clients to think about ways that they can cultivate life outside of the gym. Mm -hmm. Like 
how many of us have actual hobbies that are at the gym, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, especially like when I work with competitive athletes and stuff, it's like, well, my hobby is my, my thing. It's my whole thing. That's my gym is my hobby. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it can be, but when you get to a certain point and it starts to feel more like work than it does a hobby, then perhaps we need to introduce some hobbies into the equation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also like with, especially like competitive folks, the value of an off season, yeah. the huge importance of an off season of not competing all the time of using that off season as a time to cultivate those hobbies and as a time to work on your identity outside of the gym. Yeah. Because like, yes, to a point, if you want to be like a naturally competitive athlete, it is going to require a certain amount of work and a certain amount of like taking up of your life for a focused period. Mm -hmm. And we should be able to go into that focused period with enough clarity to say, okay, I know that I'm going to be spending this amount of time in the gym, this amount of time on food stuff, this amount of time on recovery stuff. And I know this is going to be my focus, but I also know that that isn't forever. Yeah. I also know there's a light at the end of this tunnel. Um, and that can be hard for beginners and stuff like that, because number one, it's very exciting. Um, and you just want to keep doing it all the time. Mm -hmm. Number two, Social media, especially powerlifting social media, makes us think that we can only do powerlifting if we want to be the best in the world. Mm-hmm. And if you do the thing, you must want to be the best. Um, and that is not true. <laughs> like you can want to be, you can definitely want to be the best in the world. Um, I am friends with several high level lifters and it is their life. Mm-hmm. And they acknowledge that the good ones anyways, like acknowledge the fact that like, it does cause strain on relationships. Mm-hmm. They have structured their whole life about around being able to do these things. Um, and they also acknowledge that it's not forever, mm-hmm. right? Versus when we look at powerlifting as something like you should, you know, mostly strive to want to be your best. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean being number one in the world, but it can be your best. Um, then we can kind of look at a more longevity approach, right? We can look at the fact that like, if you want to deadlift 400 pounds, that's great. You will, because all things come in time, Mm -hmm. right? And if you are willing to allow that path to be the path without placing these restrictions of like, I have to deadlift 400 pounds when I'm two years into powerlifting, uh, because that's what social media says, (laughs) then we begin to free that up a little bit. And I think that really helps with navigating those sort of like identity crises is to find a way to remember, not necessarily your why, but to remember what the sport, what this activity brings to you and to find other ways uh, to place value on it beyond just setting PRs and just getting on the platform. That was that whole thing. I was just like, yes, yes, this is my <laughs> whole experience. Like, cause it's so easy to get, especially with social media. Like that's how I found powerlifting with social mm-hmm. media. And I was definitely in that like, um, echo chamber where it was just these people and they just went to the gym and they meal prepped and they competed and then they rinsed and repeat. And it was just like PRs left and right. And everyone is PRing. And so like, you know, I'm not PRing. So what am I doing wrong? And it's just, there's, it's so, so many pieces that go together into that. Like 
comparing myself to other people, comparing myself to how I was before my injury, comparing myself to yesterday when I wasn't anxious and like being able to parse those things out is such a challenge. And yeah, yeah I don't know where I was going with that. I was just like, yes, I agree. Everything <laughs> you're saying is hitting. <laughs> well, and I think too, like, especially with folks who have um, situations in which something has fundamentally changed, whether that is a mental illness, whether that's a disability, whether that is life circumstance, there is a certain amount of grief that needs to be acknowledged and that space needs to be held for that grief. And there needs to be validation for that grief. Yeah. Like it is such a normal process to grieve the loss of who you once were. And that is also part of like the athlete identity thing too, is like when that has to shift, like, yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna grieve that. And that's totally okay. And that's fine. And we can move through that grief and use it to inform us about the things that like are actually important to us, like to really distill that down. And I think social media, like I've been doing, making money on the internet for gosh, like 15 years. I had a food blog before I did recipe development and food photography, like been on the internet a long time doing the whole social media thing. Um, and consistently, no matter what community it's in, whether it's nutrition, health, fitness, powerlifting, whatever, there is this push for comparison Mm -hmm. and it's almost unavoidable, but I think that there can be a lot of things that can like kind of be weirdly positive in terms of like when you find people who are authentic and actually sharing something outside of their highlight reel Mm -hmm. it becomes a real breath of fresh air because you're like oh this is this is a thing um and like for powerlifting it's become so normalized for people to like find the sport get into the sport and be like a top level lifter in like two to five years Mm -hmm. right that is like not an actual normal experience (laughs) like that is that is not the norm um and so I think it's helpful for people to like audit what they are consuming in that way and to uh kind of get a little bit of perspective in in that like it is so frustrating to me and almost a little mind-blowing to see people who are like two years into powerlifting and they're like I'm plateaued like you are two years into this we should not be being plateaued by any means you're just ending newbie games here maybe like you know and that can come down to like programming recovery all that like kind of more uh sciencey stuff but it also can come down to that balance it's like you can also do powerlifting for a really freaking long time yeah like there are great competitors who are in their 60s and 70s and have been doing this for like 20 plus years and I think there's a real distinction of like do you want to burn hot and fast yeah or do you want to do this for the long term either one is totally your choice just understand what they mean. Yeah, exactly. And I think like, especially within powerlifting, like the goal is to lift as much as possible and people are, they just want to get there as fast as they can. And Mm -hmm. like, it's something that I did not think about a lot when I started. And like, now that I'm like on the outside of it and I'm like, oh yeah, if I had like analyze like why am I doing this what is the purpose how long do I want to be here it was just a hobby at first and then it took over because I didn't have that conversation with myself Mm -hmm. Um, so that's super super huge um let's see what have I not hit on yet 
oh, we didn't talk about your um your neuropsych. Oh yeah. Okay, cool. So um how long ago did you get that? It was like the end of last year, right? last year beginning of this year yeah okay. mm-hmm. so um you ended up getting a neuropsych evaluation and mm-hmm. it's something that I had not seen or heard since I was a teacher we had some students that were getting neuropsych evals because their parents were like what is going on we need to figure out what's happening right. in your brain and I like was like oh this is a thing I didn't know you could do that um but they're not as accessible as one might think they would be uh so could you share your experience with like how you chose to get the neuropsych eval what the process was like how expensive it was anything anything like that yeah so I got my neuropsych eval because the doctor I worked with for my concussion physical therapy who like oversaw my treatment and he does like the doctory part of my treatment um I had been like I'd been regressing essentially from when I had left PT and like kind of been out of it for a while. And mm-hmm. I took like those six months off of training in, in person. And in my mind, I was like, this is going to fix everything. Mm-hmm. This is going to be it. It's going to be great. You know? Um, and it didn't. And mm-hmm. I like found myself getting like steadily worse. Like my memory was getting worse. My mm-hmm. focus was worse, all these sorts of things. And my doctor was like this, you know, we need to kind of like parse out here. What is mental health? What is TBI? What is both? And how Mm -hmm. they're interacting with each other. And so he gave me the recommendation to do a neuropsych eval. Um, And like the process of accessing like a neuropsychiatrist um, is different, I would imagine, based on insurance things in terms of pre-approval and all that sort of good stuff. But Um, The process itself was like a three appointment process. So the first appointment, the um, clinician basically asked for my life history (laughs) Um, (laughs) and like how I got my concussions and things like that. So it's kind of like a long interview sort of thing. The second appointment is the actual testing appointment, which is about three-ish hours long. Um, And you're doing a bunch of different tests. Some are on the computer. Some are like someone's reading you a list of words and you have to recall them. And then you got to do it 20 minutes later after you've done all these tasks or you're drawing things or like filling out a little booklet um, sort of situation. Uh, and so there's that process. And then the third appointment is discussing your results and things like that. Um, and the uh, initial appointment was great, all good, kind of. I told her like everything that I thought was relevant um, with the caveat that like, I don't have a lot of good recall of like my childhood and like very specific things in my childhood because trauma things Mm -hmm. like that's how our brains work, which is a kind of a flaw in the process in and of itself. But you know, I'm like, I don't know if I was like this when I was a kid because I don't remember. Uh, I only know what people tell me. Um, And then the testing portion is extremely exhausting um, and very tiring uh, and hard. It's just hard. Uh, And then the results uh, I thought were really interesting. So for myself personally, um, we were really looking for some distinctions in like my focus, um, in my memory and and things of that nature. So what I had been describing was a lot of like ADHD type symptoms, um, but she was very hesitant to diagnose me as ADHD because she's like, you didn't have these sorts of things as a child. 
-hmm. And my sort of query back was like, well, I don't remember number one, two, uh, ADHD brains love structure. Mm -hmm. And I had a highly structured childhood, like between school and like extracurriculars and all that sort of stuff, being a very like high achieving person. Uh, and I can recall that when that structure was gone, things were not so good. Yeah. So, and she was kind of like, it doesn't necessarily matter, like in terms of like, we officially label you that or not, we just need to like get to the treatment part of things, Mm -hmm. which I a hundred percent, uh, agree with. And, um, we were also looking for like depression, anxiety, bipolar things, Mm -hmm. um, and like how those coincided with TBI, Mm -hmm. because a lot of times with TBI, what we see is an increase in mood disorders, um, because things, there's a trauma to your brain and chemical neurotransmitters, uh, get a little wonky and things like that. And there are also other health implications. Like we see a lot of like, um, thyroid problems and stuff like that, that can come along from TBI as well. So that whole process was pretty informative and pretty interesting. Um, and definitely informed like my treatment today. It was extremely expensive. My insurance covered none of it. About $1,000. Oh my God. Yeah. So, and I, I can probably fight back on that a little bit, which I plan to. Um, but it is something that I think can be helpful. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you are somebody who is interested in knowing those things. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are some inherent flaws to the way that it is done in terms of like recall for trauma, um, and the norming of things. Cause the way it's done is like, you are compared to a norm. Um, and for like and myself, what is, that, what is that norm? Right. Right. And like, that is just like a bunch of aggregated data. Right. And like for myself, um, it would have been better for me to have done this immediately post concussion. And then like a couple, like a year in and like another year in, yeah. so like kind of making a long process to see what the changes yeah. are. So I think that's like also like a valuable thing too is like, and she even like my practitioner who did the neuropsych about recommended to like come back and do this in like two years and let's see where you are because our brains are very plastic and continue to improve Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. That's so interesting. I like, I kind of want to do one, but I'm also like my insurance probably won't cover it. And I'm like, do I have the money to spend on that? But if I'm, I'm just thinking if that was more accessible to people, like, how much easier people's lives would be because it's half of the battle like it's not about getting the diagnoses like I I I don't necessarily need those labels applied to me but like understanding how my brain works and why it works the way it does it like that's what's so empowering and like I have this book um that you probably have read since you uh, are a trauma baby too it's uh the body keeps the score Mm -hmm. and that book was like eye-opening for me because it was it was not just like, this is what you're experiencing. It was like, this is what is happening in your brain with your neurons. And look at, this is what your amygdala is doing all the time. And I was like, it's not me. It's not a flaw inherently that I have. It is literally my biology. And that like, that helped in and of itself. But then it also informed my treatment plan. Like now Mm -hmm. I view everything through a PTSD lens or a neurodivergent lens. Like my brain just does not work that way. And it's been pivotal to like helping me be able to heal and to get past a lot of the struggles that I have. Um, 
So, I mean, you have this neuropsyche eval and um, it gave you a bigger picture of like what's going on with you. What is your treatment plan look like? Like, do you have a therapist? Are you on medication? Um, in addition to all the coping skills that you're doing on a daily basis as well, right? Yeah. So I do have a therapist. She's wonderful. I love her to death. Um, and she is just amazing. But um, I have recently, over the past couple months, um, been on a new medication. I was on one medication that was sort of like a down regulator a little bit because mm-hmm. I'm a person who can feel very like activated is the only way I can kind of describe it. And like my nervous system is activated. Like I have no appetite. Um, I'm very hypervigilant. Yep. I feel like I'm going to crawl out of my skin sort of sensation. Yep. Um, and so we had tried medication for that. That worked for a little bit, but I was like, I still, my focus still sucks. I'm still really struggling with being able to do everything that I need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and a big part of that was like, I don't feel motivated to do anything. And I don't necessarily mean motivation and like the way that like fitness frames motivation, because motivation is really just like a behavioral driver. And we're motivated to do things all the time. We're motivated to eat because we need to survive. We're motivated to sleep because we need to survive. Um, And so I was like, I don't want to do any of that. I don't have an autopilot function. I, everything is very intentional. I have to really think about all the things that I'm doing. Um, And so my doctor was like, we're going to try something a little different here. And so he put me on a dopamine agonist um, and it's actually like a Parkinson's medication and also weirdly like a flu treatment. I don't know. Um, bodies are very weird. They <laughs> are. <laughs> you know, the dosage is kind of is very different. Um, but once I got on that, everything shifted. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, I actually feel like I want to do things. I feel like I am able to do things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm able to read a book. And then get up and go clean the house. Yeah. Versus if I was reading a book, that's it. I'm not getting up again, no matter, you know, unless it's like, I really have to drag myself to do that. And it takes all of my energy, all of my focus to do those sorts of things. And it makes a lot of sense um, because when we look at dopamine, we really, uh, most people think of dopamine as like the pleasure chemical. And like, yes, it has a huge role in how we process, receive get like incentivized for pleasure, Mm -hmm. but it's really the main driver of motivation and that like behavioral driver for that. Um, And so when your dopamine is dysregulated, which is often the case with folks with ADHD and other neurodivergent things and other mental illnesses as well, um, it feels like you're kind of walking through mud just to do the tasks of of daily living. Yeah. Um, And that in and of itself creates a spiral of frustrating experiences kind of like we've touched on where it's like well what is wrong with me why can I not do this everybody else seems to be able to do this just fine this Uh, is a me problem I'm inferior in some way and like we begin to like internalize and shame spiral in that way so treatment currently is therapy medication um and then like psychiatric medications as well. I'm kind of like in the middle of a switch with that now that we've switched um, my like neuromeds. Um, but 
the main thing that has come out of this has been it's an ever-shifting process Mm -hmm. Um, because like as my brain continues to heal as I'm able to do more things or I'm able to work more or whatever my needs and deficits sort of shift Mm -hmm. a bit so I'm very lucky to have a psychiatrist who kind of understands that and is very willing to kind of do some controlled experimentation with that to find what's fitting best and that's medication is so challenging too. like oh, it's gosh, to yeah. find the right combination and like coming off of meds and starting new meds. So like my heart goes out to you with because your brain is going to be changing over the right. next year. And so like you're going to have to do those medication switches pretty frequently and they're mm-hmm. not fun because it's like I remember when I changed my medication last night, I wanted to like just put life on pause. I was like, I can't like deal with all of these things because I can't control my emotions I can't control like my motivation like I would Mm -hmm. one day I would be have no desire to do anything like nothing and then the next day I'd feel like I was manic and I was like what is going on like I don't know how to do this and there it's so so challenging um but the things that you were saying about like the motivation piece and like So I am recently realizing that I probably also have adult onset ADHD, also am toying around with the idea that I might be autistic. And a lot of those uh, traits, it's like, you know, people are like, oh, you're just lazy. You don't want to like people with ADHD. It's like, oh, well, you can play your video games for six hours, but then you can't clean your room. And it's like, well, like two very different things it's two very it's because it's something I'm interested in it's something that I enjoy and then it's also like you know I get those dopamine like hits from that mm-hmm. thing and it's like when you are doing something that you you don't want to do you have no desire to do like you physically cannot do it like I and if like I'm sitting there and I'm like I want to eat I want to eat something but I I cannot make myself right. like I'm trying so hard and I'm like on the verge of tears because I like know I need to eat and I want to do it and I just can't. And so many people that are neurotypical, like don't understand what is happening in that because they're like, just do it, just do it. And I'm like, but you can't just do it. It's so much more complicated than that. Right. And like for folks with ADHD, especially, um, starting is very hard Yes, for everyone in general starting is very hard. Um, I mean, we see that in fitness a lot, whether you're starting a new gym routine, Mm -hmm. nutrition change, any sort of like behavioral change, starting is always the hardest part, right? Once we get into it, we kind of have inertia to carry us there. And we have things like habits um, and like uh, we build more conducive environments to prompt us to do these things. And so for like my folks with ADHD and stuff, a lot of what we spend time discussing and doing is like, how do we navigate those ups and downs? How do we do behaviors that are aligned with our intentions and our goals while giving ourselves grace to be a person who is not neurotypical? Yeah. Right. And so sometimes that looks different. And I think that like, there's a lot of, a lot of space for that and a lot of room for that, if you allow it to be. And a lot of it is reframing what that looks like and a lot of it is as well just kind of like having the understanding that like this starting of the thing is gonna be hard and I acknowledge that and accept that how can I make it as easy as possible for me to do 
the next best thing. Yeah. And I talk a lot with my clients about doing like doing the least and like doing the bare minimum. <laughs> like, what does that look like for you to do the bare minimum that you need to do to feel good with yourself and to continue kind of like moving towards that goal. And we come up with those contingency plans and say, yeah. you know what, we're having a rough week, month, couple months, we're going to bare minimum plan mm-hmm. and we're going to work on executing that. Because part of that too is like, once we actually do the thing, mm-hmm. we start to number one, cultivate self-trust because self-trust is a relationship and it needs mm-hmm. to be built. And we do that by showing up for ourselves and keeping yeah. the promises we make for ourselves. And then we get the good feel good chemicals in our brain because we checked the box. We did the thing. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, if we can just find different strategies to make that happen, to start that process, yeah. then when the ball gets rolling, we tend to be a little bit better there. Yeah. It's a lot of creative problem solving and having flexibility, which is also like counterintuitive to a lot of neurodivergent folks who like don't like having like they're very rigid and structured and it's hard to be flexible Mm -hmm. but like it's it's absolutely imperative to being able to navigate those difficult weeks or months or whatever it is that you're going through um I think a big part of that too is like removing the idea of flexibility as moral failure yeah um and like embracing the the peaks and valleys and also doing some like self-education or like guided education with a coach mm-hmm. in terms of learning when to push and push forward and when to pull back because both of those things are appropriate at different times and the more education we get and the more recognition we can get on how to do that for ourselves mm-hmm. it makes things smoother because we're not having these fits of like starting and stopping starting and stopping we're just kind of coasting yeah. Sometimes we're pushing harder and sometimes we're pulling back and that's fine, but we're still just kind of coasting along there. Yeah. And I think like a huge thing of that too, is pulling the, the judgment out of it, like, and Absolutely. not applying moral values to the things that you're doing or that you're not doing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's going to take a lot of unlearning on a societal level, on an individual level, because we all do that. And it's like, oh, I should be doing this. And so the fact that I'm not doing it means that I'm bad. It means that I'm less than, and it's just all of these things build on each other. Oh yeah. hundred percent. So, I mean, this was an all over the place conversation, but it was yeah. so good to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, how can my listeners find you on social media? Um, so my handle is Gab Strength, G-A-B Strength on both Twitter and Instagram. Um, I'm a little more active on Instagram in terms of like educational content. And I kind of just like post some of that on Twitter um, and some of my like random leftist rantings and stuff like that. <laughs> People are interested in that sort of stuff too. Um, but yeah, and then uh, yeah, Instagram is probably the best way to get me. All right. So I definitely recommend going and finding Gabby. She has so much good content. I mean, she's also super strong. So if you want to go see a badass woman, push a lot of weight around, (laughs) she is your girl. Um, But she has so many great insights. She's very leftist. So if you are a comrade, I think you'll like what she has to say. Um, But yeah, thank you so much again. And I probably will have you on again because I think that we have some other areas that we could dig a little deeper into. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This has been like such a wonderful time. Awesome. Thank you so much, Gabby. Have a great rest of your day. Um, And then 
I guess we'll keep trying to get through the Menti Bs and crying in those Chubbies. Absolutely. Thanks for joining for another episode. You can find the podcast on social media on Instagram at crying and trying underscore pod on Facebook at crying and trying pod and on Twitter at crying underscore trying underscore pod. You can also find me personally on Instagram at Lex underscore G O N underscore give it to you. And that is the number two. If you'd like to email us, our email address is crying and trying pod at gmail.com. Feel free to send us questions, comments, episode suggestions, or any other feedback you have. I truly love interacting with the listeners, and your input is vital to helping the show grow. If you know anybody who would benefit by listening, or who could even be a great guest, please share the podcast with them. The best ways to help a small independent podcast grow is to rate, review, and subscribe so other listeners can find us. You can also help by liking, commenting, and sharing our posts on social media to help grow the community. If you'd like to support the show with a small monthly donation, you can do so on our podcast page. This is just a placeholder until I'm able to get our Patreon up and running, but every small donation is appreciated. I'm also a proud member of the PodPros community and utilize PodMatch to connect with many amazing guests. This podcast is researched, produced, and edited by me, Lexi Hamsmith, using Anchor by Spotify. <laughs>